Morning, Glory, and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is that time for an unusual Hillsdale Dialogue Hour. Normally, I reserve the last radio hour of the week, the third hour on Friday for these conversations. But I didn't do it last Friday because it was our Semper Fi fun show. And the Friday before, it was the commencement at Hillsdale. So it's been two weeks without your Hillsdale Dialogue fix. And I was accosted in Arizona on Thursday last by irate listeners who were wondering what was going on. I said, well, they had a commencement at, uh, at Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn, and I, I hope it went well, and I hope it commenced well, but we, have a, we now have an addicted population, and they get all twitchy when we don't show up on time. Isn't that great? And so that means that no matter what happens to us, we have to carry on. We'll just keep recycling them and playing them. The classics will keep going on. Join Dr. Arn today is uh, Dr. Matthew Gaetano. He got his undergraduate degree from Hillsdale. He got his master's and his doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. He teaches Western American heritage, the Renaissance, and the Reformation. And you're back at Hillsdale. Does it feel a little boomerang to you, Dr. Gaetano? Well, when I first got back, it was, uh, but it's a beautiful experience. It's, it's good to be back. Well, I'm glad and to hear good that. To be with you. You're good. Okay, let me, so he won't tell you a story, so I'll tell you one. All right. Uh, so when he's just a kid, right, he's still a kid, but when he's just a kid and a student here, he comes in my office one time and he starts asking me a bunch of questions about faculty relations. What? Yeah, and one of the questions is the Christmas bonus. At what? At Hillsdale College, <laughs> you get $25 as a Christmas bonus. It's been that way since Hector, since what? years before I ever came here, right? <laughs> and the point is, he hears the joke about it. And so he wants to know, and here's the deal. He's about to go off to Ivy League, you know, graduate school. You, you won't be able to tell it by what he says today, but Gaetano is very smart. <laughs> and so he... Uh, so he wants to know if we're treating our faculty right because he's thinking maybe I'll come back here and teach. And I said, well, I'll have to teach you about management because, of course, we don't really compensate people through the Christmas bonus. And, 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 I, and I inherited that deal. And I can do one of two things. I can lower it or I can I, – and if I lower it, it means eliminate it or I could raise it. Well, if I lower it, the jokes will still go on except now they'll be about me being Grinch. Yes. <laughs> so, or I could raise it, and then I'm changing how we actually compensate people around here. So the point is, now I'm a lover at, of justice. Yeah, now he's like, well, actually, actually, that was nothing but future avarice. Is the, is the Christmas bonus still twenty five dollars? I think so. It's, oh, it's, it's horrible. I don't know if there's anything. We think, might have got rid of it. And we may, may take be, up a special collection for the the faculty at Hillsdale. It's possible that we got rid of it, and it's possible he's the cause. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> great. Now those people are looking at their empty stocking stuffers. Let me before we dive into the Renaissance with you two, uh, since it was the Memorial Day weekend. I wanted to begin by asking Dr. Arndt to tell us the story of the memorial of the Civil War troops there on Hillsdale campus, because you, you paused one time with me in front of it and told me that story, and I thought it was quite remarkable. And as we come out of the Memorial Day, we really ought not in the month of May stop remembering these people, but that's really quite, quite something. Well, the early story of the college is really great, and it's the reason I left what I was doing and came to work here. Uh, the... The college was founded by people who were part of the cause of what later became the cause of Abraham Lincoln. And they loved God, and they loved learning, and they loved freedom, and they hated slavery. And they taught those things. They didn't really teach the military. They just taught those things. And people, when the Civil War <coughs> broke out, basically all the young men went away to the war. There were hardly any boys left here at Hillsdale College. And 
the number is somewhere north of 400. Um, and that's the largest in absolute terms we can find for any college that's not a military college except Yale, which was older and larger than we. And in percentage terms, probably the, the highest of anybody. And there were several who won the Congressional Medal of Honor. There were several dozen in the wheat field at the Battle of Gettysburg. And three of our students uh, were chosen to stand in the honor guard over the burial of Abraham Lincoln. So there was a great war record here. And, and it just shows that uh, it's the reason free people can fight because it was no part of the purpose of the college to do pre-military training. And, you know, we don't even have that today, but we still have incredible numbers joining the armed services from here. And that's because we love our freedom, and when it's challenged, we rally to fight for it. I'm curious as to your reaction of our current commander-in-chief to the current scandal engulfing the Veterans Administration, especially on, again, the, the day after Memorial Day weekend concludes. Well... So far, by the way, what reaction? There you go. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, it's a it's it's a symptom of bureaucratic. What seems to be going on is a symptom of bureaucratic government in two senses. The first is they they ration things by authority and by forming queues and by people waiting their turn. But of course, there's enormous incentives to cheat the system, and those incentives are heavily located inside the system. So Steve Levitt, the the economist from University of Chicago, in his book Freakonomics, figures out that in the city of Chicago, for example, where there's incentives to schools for their kids to do well on standardized tests, they were giving them the answers, or they were cheating in various ways, right? So what's going on in the VA is people in authority are gaming the numbers so it looks like their wait list are not long, whereas, in fact, they're so long that people are dying. And the president of the United States has deigned now to... I mean, goodness, he managed to get himself attacked in the Washington Post. I know, and, and they were giving themselves bonuses for gaming the system. Uh, yeah. Speaking of bonuses at Christmas time, they've given themselves significant bonuses, many of which now the president purports to have withdrawn from them. But uh, and, and General Shinseki, uh, Secretary Shinseki, but it's just it's remarkable that he campaigned on the reform of the institution, and then instead of reforming it, let it lay, and when leaving it lay, erected it across the rest of the United States medical system. And see, there's a there's a that's exactly right, and and you know, so first of all, there are evidences of shameful behavior. And there's second, a lesson to draw, and that is if instead of VA hospitals and waiting lists, you gave veterans vouchers and money and told them to go buy what they need on the open market, that would place them in charge of the system. And there we have a distinction between two kinds of government. Well said. Now, I have, a, I have a bridge question because we were talking about Lincoln's war and the college, which was part of the, the party of Lincoln or the, the movement that got Abraham Lincoln elected. So I'll ask uh, Dr. Gaetano, was Abraham Lincoln a humanist? Because we're going to study the father of humanism today. Hmm. That's an interesting question, Hugh. I, I mean, I, I think if you define humanism in the narrower sense that I was that I was talking about uh, earlier, that it's a devotion to antiquity. It's a devotion to the studia humanitatis, the studies of humanity, grammar, poetry, rhetoric, moral philosophy. I think, you know, Abraham Lincoln, like many of his day in the 19th century in America, were 
were given that kind of education, that kind of liberal arts education rooted in Greek and Latin literature. I mean, Dr. Arnold can tell me more, tell us more about the specific education of Abraham Lincoln, but I'm sure that he was deeply acquainted with classical literature, and that's a real inheritance, a real vest, uh, a real uh, consequence of what these Renaissance humanists gave to the uh, you know Western European culture. What say you, Doctor? Was Lincoln a humanist? Well, Lincoln. Uh, so of course, uh, Lincoln, like Winston Churchill, lacked a college education, <laughs> and, but, and really, he sort of lacked a high school education. So he, there are two things to say about him, and they're very like, by the way. Churchill, who was consistently a friend of what we at Hillsdale call liberal education. Uh, Lincoln loved more than anything to read. He loved Shakespeare and the mm -hmm. Bible. And he knew his Shakespeare like nobody. I mean, he had a kind of academic knowledge of the play Macbeth and would, in, in, in very interesting ways, would compare one production of it with another. Uh, Lincoln said something about education and its purpose that's very revealing and seems to me profoundly true. Uh, there really are three things to, to, to get from education, and two of them are needed by everybody. And the first thing is what Matthew just described. He just actually described some parts of both of the first two things. Um, there are basics. We human beings navigate through the world and our souls operate around our gift of speech, which means talking and reading and mm. writing are fundamentally important. So you need that. And any school system that's not good at teaching those things to a high state of competence for everybody who walks in there except the very rare impaired people is a shameful thing. It's as bad as the VA. Uh, the second thing you need is development on that. And, oh, by the way, that also includes arithmetic and mm. calculation and all that kind of human reason functioning. The second thing you need is you need basic knowledge of the great story of the world, and that means history and literature and such. And then the final thing is you need knowledge of ends. What are you? What is God? What are you for? We'll so talk about that and how that goes into humanism and the father of humanism when the Hillsdale Dialogue delayed from Friday begins again after the break on this Tuesday edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. Good Tuesday afternoon to you. I hope your Memorial Day weekend was a wonderful one. We uh, delayed our Hillsdale Dialogue from last Friday in order to honor the Semper Fi Fund and do our annual uh, show for them. And so we're going to do a twofer a Hillsdale Dialogue this week today on Tuesday and, and coming up on Friday and joining us uh, again next week, I hope, will be Dr. Gaetano and Dr. Larry Arn, because I doubt we'll push very far through this introduction of the Renaissance through the works of Petrarch today, because I keep doing frolics and detours, and I'm about to do two of them. Um, one came from your mention of Churchill in the last segment, Dr. Arn. In Britain, there were some elections last weekend, and a new party emerged as a strong contender for a future role in the governance of the Isle. Uh, are you, uh, do you think it has any part of Churchill's legacy in it? Uh, well, I uh, I pray so. <laughs> it, um, um, it, you know, first of all, the West, so he, here's, you know, we were talking about Obama and about the VA and about that terrible scandal. And, and by the way, that's just the scandal of the week, right? Right. Mm -hmm. This is the way government works. It's very complicated. There's an enormous hierarchy above you. If you need something from it, it might be hard to get, and you've got to pray that you don't make it mad. And so 
that's the story of of uh, of Western and Chinese government. But there are two changes in the last ten days that offer some hope, and more important, in my opinion, than the British election. Did you follow the Indian? Election? Oh yes, very closely. Talked about it at length here on the air because uh, Mark Stein and I were in agreement, uh, and he's frequently on Hills Hills campus. And I won't surprise you that though Obama has paid very little attention to India, it is a robust, muscular, and Reagan-like era ahead of it now. Yeah, it's uh, and see that guy is a tremendous guy and and uh, the the fellow in India and Modi yeah, yeah and it's the same thing you know and first of all India is incredibly important its population is growing faster than China it has the institutions of representative government and the basic institutions of freedom of speech and property rights it's terribly corrupt right and very centralized and Modi is going to try to fix that well, just when you think the legacy of Churchill and Thatcher is destroyed, wow, where did those guys come from in Britain? Right. And, and uh, that's so – and see, here, here's the thing that Churchill believed very much. Churchill believed that there were some things that were available to simple common sense and that those things would always assert themselves. Uh, if you force out nature, uh, it will return at the gallop was one of his favorite – expressions. So he always believed the socialist would be beaten. He didn't believe they would have ever won except for the world wars, which in his opinion could have been avoided, and he worked to avoid them, and the Great Depression. And and so, you know, this drama that's going on, are we really settling down into an age where experts dominate everything and they can redefine and alter any institution they want to family, property, religion included? And the answer is, there's reasons to think not. Yep. They're very good ones, very strong ones. And uh, nature returns at a gallop, so does the desire to be left alone. And mm-hmm. I think that is, it's, it's a huge desire. But I, now I want to get gateway back to where this all began, mm-hmm. which is in Italy 700 years ago. Uh, and by all began... I'm talking about humanism and sort of the Western revitalization of the intellectual life. And we were tying Aquinas and Dante for many weeks, uh, Dr. Gaetano. And then uh, your colleague, uh, uh, Professor Ray, says, you've got to do Petrarch. And I said, who? Uh, because I'm, I'm going to be the first to admit he had not crossed my path before. And I thought myself well-educated. So tell us a little bit about Petrarch and assume that... My did audience. You, did you think that? <laughs> yeah. Did you think that? Did you? Uh, I, he may I, have been the only one. <laughs> so tell us about him. Well, there actually are some nice bridges between Petrarch and and what you and Dr. Arn were talking about. That you know Petrarch uh, grew up and lived in the very midst of the Avignon Papacy, a time that you know many look back on as a time of you know corruption or real challenges for the Latin Western Church. Uh, when he describes his own day in On His Own Ignorance and that of many others, whenever he talks about the moderns, he sees them as you know not caring about learning, not caring about eloquence, because all they cared about, he said, was, was money. And Petrarch wanted rather to walk in the footsteps of the ancients. And he thought that you know, ancient literature, you know, but especially a real personal encounter with figures like Cicero and also like Augustine, not just knowing their thought, but knowing them as human beings, could really enrich his, his own day. And 
uh, you know, he, he was someone who was very, very critical, not, not as much of the whole Middle Ages, which is the standard view of the Renaissance, but really of, of his own time as one that was lacking in uh, the kind of virtuous and eloquent uh, figures that antiquity was so, so filled with. Now, now, you know what's interesting to me about him is that when cornered as I was by massive ignorance, I do what all lawyers do, which is to assign those who work for you to research the subject and brief you on it. And so I sent Hillsdale Jack, our intern of the summer, off to do this pricey for me. And he came back with the briefing that he would write letters to the ancients and that, that he mm-hmm. would try this device. I thought, well, that's very odd. And that he took Augustine up a mountain with him and 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 did all these sort of odd things. Had it not occurred to anyone else to try that? And he was also a, a massive collector of manuscripts, which I found fascinating. That That's not really something we associate with the life of the modern public intellectual anymore. That's right. These uh, Renaissance humanists, they loved books, and they would you know, travel throughout Europe to find that rare manuscript. And it would be this public event when some manuscript was discovered. But of course, we can't forget, I mean, you, you've just been talking to, to people about these medieval figures like Aquinas, Dante. You know, they certainly were very well acquainted with ancient culture, ancient learning and civilization. So what are the humanists really adding? You know, and I think it is that kind of sense of wanting to really understand people like Cicero and Augustine in their own context. You know, Aquinas would take all sorts of, you know, quotations, all sorts of, uh, you know, materials from the works of Augustine. But do you really get the sense that Thomas Aquinas would carry around the confessions, this autobiographical account of Augustine, you know, in his, uh, in his, you know, in his garments? That's, that's not the image that we have. But Petrarch, it's very much, uh, you know, as you said, he's writing letters. It's, it's very personal antiquity is to him. He really wants to be like the ancients in the in the midst of what he sees as a as a as a dark period, but also, you know, we can't forget that he's an Italian. So uh when when these Italians want to live, you know, as good citizens of their republics, where are they going to look but to ancient Greece and ancient Rome for examples of, you know, civic virtue and uh you know, living the kind of life that the ancients uh, you know, so clearly expressed that they were attempting to live. When we come back from break, we'll talk a little bit about his body of work, Petrarch, mm-hmm. who lived from 1304 to 1374. But it was Ulysses S. Grant who said, tell me something of the childhood and then I'll know the man. And I found one interesting detail is that his father's buddy was Dante. And so if your father's friend is Dante, you're almost compelled to go into the poetry line, I think, if you've seen a little bit of that. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And uh, Professor Dr. Matthew Gaetano, also of Hillsdale College, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, Back to the Iliad, are available at hughforhillsdale.com and all of Hillsdale's many offerings at hillsdale.edu. Go and avail yourself. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, on a Tuesday afternoon. Thank you for listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show. It's the delayed Hillsdale Dialogue from last week, which we could not do. And yes, we'll be back on our regular schedule on Friday. Joining me today, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague, Dr. Matthew Gaetano, who teaches the Renaissance there. We're talking about Petrarch, whom many people refer to as the father of the Renaissance. And I'm curious, you know, I think it would probably lead to a, a an academic scuffle of sorts if you actually tried to date the Renaissance and the Dark Ages of Professor Gaetano, uh, given some of your colleagues trying to put Aquinas and Dante 
into the Renaissance and others struggling to hold them back because I think you just pushed them back over the cliff into the medieval period there. So what is the deal for we lawyers who like to date things and want very simple questions answered? When does it start? That's a, you know, that is an academic scuffle of huge proportions. But, you know, I, I would be very comfortable saying, you know, Thomas Aquinas, Dante, these are, these are medieval figures. But the Middle Ages is not some dark period, some kind of bad thing. The, the middle, middle Ages, uh, the High Middle Ages starting, say, you know, you know uh, the, the, the later Middle Ages starting around the year 1000, you know, moving into the middle of the 14th century, you know, with the, the Black Death and these real challenges of the 14th century, this is a, a high point in European civilization, the University of Paris, scholasticism, the reappropriation of Aristotelian philosophy. This is a, a significant achievement of the Latin West. But what's going on uh, when we talk about the Renaissance, you know, one might think of it as at least beginning as a movement, right, in the 14th century with figures like Petrarch and some uh, figures before him, Lovato Lovati, uh, some other Italian poets. And it's, it's not as much that they are trying to start a whole new era or anything like that, of course. But what they're trying to do is say that, uh, you know, someone like Thomas Aquinas, you know, this Aristotelianism of the University of Paris, these are really important uh, movements and achievements and so on. But we, we don't know uh, someone like Thomas Aquinas for his literary flair. Right? <laughs> he, he, he wrote yes. some beautiful poems as uh, Professor Cole, I think. Uh, and some beautiful hymns. About. Some yes. beautiful hymns. But uh, th- using the ancient Latin poets especially as exemplars for how to write poetry to really, as I, as I was saying before, to have this kind of very personal experience of antiquity, to walk in the ruins of Rome in the footsteps of the ancients. This is something that's going on in 14th century Italy and that only expands in the 15th century, which is often called the Quattrocento, the 1400s, and then is kind of transported throughout all of, all of Europe at the late in the late 15th century and the 16th century. And so. I, I think of it partly as a massively successful branding exercise. And now I'm going to lay it on That's Petrarch right. because he has a very self-aware, I'm different from them, much the same way, Dr. And you referred to the progressives who bent this country, uh, much the same way that they branded themselves as different from all that had gone before. So was Petrarch the first progressive? Ooh. I, 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 I think I would say no, because for him, it's antiquity. You know, it's, it is the ancients, ad fontes, back to the sources, that he's using to distinguish himself from his immediate forebears. But the ancients so that, thought themselves scientists, right? And, and Aristotle mm-hmm. was a scientist, and, and there's some Platonists running around here, but, but they're very rationalistic. And isn't that what the progressives thought? So... I mean, you have this turn, turn, uh, turn to antiquity, but I think I think you're fundamentally right that you know Petrarch is one of the first who has this. It's it's very it's not all that pronounced in him, as we'll see later uh, in the Reformation period and and beyond. But in Petrarch, you do see this patricidal tendency, this idea that we're going to push away from the generations immediately before us, the tradition that we've inherited, and kind of leapfrog over centuries back to a, a, a very different period that, as you said, is a kind of branding exercise, right? It's, it's Petrarch's vision of antiquity. And it's condescending, isn't it, Dr. Arndt? I mean, it is. 
uh, Aquinas and Dante, my dad's friend, you know, they're not up to my level. I'm doing something new and different or the classic temptation of youth. Yeah. But so I'm mostly I have questions for Matthew. And uh, because uh, we're, we're talking about a distinction that's difficult to make. Frame them and then we're going to go to break. Frame them and let him think about them during the okay, break. Okay. So the, one is the idea that you arise as a new force and say that you're more interested in the classics than Thomas Aquinas is obviously foolish. Um, that's one. Mm-hmm. But then the second is, you can look ahead later to Machiavelli, mm-hmm. which we're going to go to, right? Yes. And then you can really see some differences. And so, is Petrarch the kernel of Machiavelli, or is he some development on Thomas Aquinas? Oh, interesting. It is very interesting, actually. It may tell us a lot about how to prepare for what's coming next in this country as well, if you do believe in that cycle. I'll be right back, America, in Hillsdale uh, Dialogue, part uno, whatever it is. Uh, We will be back with Dr. Gaetano, Dr. Larry Arnn. Stay tuned to The Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. The delayed Hillsdale Dialogue from last Friday is happening right now here with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague, Dr. Matthew Gaetano. You can read all about Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. You can sign up for Imprimus, their speech digest, which I assume will have the commencement address uh, that was delivered at the college two weeks ago, somewhere down the road. Yeah, Eric Metaxas. And how did he do? Well, he wasn't as good as you said he'd be, but he was really good. <laughs> he was he was he was excellent. He's a, and, he's a tremendous guy, and I met him for the first time. Oh, that was the first time. It's oh, interesting, yeah. and he'd never been to Hillsdale before. Interesting. So the uh, and then we were talking about uh, earlier in the year. I was talking with Jonah Goldberg about his book that the, the liberal fascism, and then he wrote on on the progressives, and we and Charles Kessler wrote on the progressives, and we began this hour unintentionally talking about the progressives. And here we are talking about Petrarch, and it's and he has that attitude. And when we went to break, Dr. Arnett asked Dr. Gaetano, what is it that would allow someone to call themselves a new force that could dismiss Aquinas as not up to snuff? And he suggested foolishness, but I'm not going to call Petrarch a fool. And then uh, is, he a, is he a coda and a riff on Aquinas, or is he the colonel of Machiavelli? What do you think? That's a, that's, those are great questions. I, You know, there is something... As much as, you know, my job is to defend Petrarch a bit here, but, you know, he is a little cocky and pretentious. I mean, he uh, claims never to have read Dante. I mean, everyone in Italy was, was, was reading Dante. And he says, well, you know, I didn't have time to read Dante Alighieri. And, you know, that's just one example of this. You know, his father was actually named Ser Petrarco, not Petrarca, right? This kind of beautiful, much more... Uh, mellifluous name that you know that he that he employed throughout throughout his life. You know he was invited by the great University of Paris to be crowned as the great poet of his era, and he declined that to go to Rome, right? Because even though Rome wasn't you know all that you know the Pope wasn't even there, it wasn't the greatest place to be. You know it was symbolic of you know Petrarch being this great reviver of of this ancient Roman tradition. So there is something cocky and pretentious about him. But I, but I do think that we don't see as much of a rupture as, as uh, we, we might think when we think of, you know, the Dark Ages, the, the Renaissance, the rebirth, the, yeah, the not, light shining again. And not to lose one of your points, uh, Matthew is arguing that the Dark Ages were not dark. Right. And you'd call them middle. And right. uh, you'd call them bright, too, wouldn't you? Not, not dark, no, but bright. Quite bright. I mean, and obviously the idea of a middle age is kind of absurd. I mean, we all live in a middle age. There are times before us and there are times to come. So, 
you know, this is a really a kind of problematic way of thinking about a whole period of history, one filled with achievements. But I don't think Petrarch, as much as he began that process of thinking in the Middle Ages that way, he's not as bad as the later Enlightenment philosophers and, and others who just completely dismissed the achievements of the Middle Ages. Well, as you, you sent me an excerpt of his coronation oration that mm-hmm. Petrarch that reads, there was a time, well, you read it to people, you'll probably be better at it than I, but this is... This is awfully doggone dismissive of all that has gone before him except the Romans. There was a time, there was an age that was happier for poets. An age when they were held in the highest honor, first in Greece and then in Italy. But today, as you well know, all this is changed. Well, that is is dismissive. That's right. But notice what he focuses on here is poetry, right? It's not everything the Middle Ages produced. It's medieval poetry, and he sees himself as, and many of the humanists did, as reviving interest in particular disciplines focused on, you know, as I said, uh, poetry, grammar, uh, moral philosophy, other things, all under the rubric of eloquence. And, and, and why is that? And I think this is where he actually is more in touch with Thomas Aquinas than we might, we might think. In this On His Own Ignorance and That of Many Others, which is part of the Western Heritage Reader at Hillsdale, uh, he's opposing Aristotelianism. We might assume that, oh, he's opposing Aristotelians. That's, that's like Thomas Aquinas. But who are these Aristotelians? They're ones who are saying, oh, look, Aristotle said the world was eternal, the soul was mortal. And they were using Aristotle to say that the Christian faith is just filled with fables, that Augustine was an ignorant man. Would, would Thomas Aquinas say anything like this? No, certainly not. So and you're I, then putting him more of the the iteration of Aquinas than with Machiavelli. And yeah, I, and I, I think they have a common enemy in this so-called secular Aristotelianism. And that would preserve then, I don't have to go back and start over, because my teacher as an undergraduate always called Machiavelli the break, Larry Arne, and you know mm-hmm. Harvey, well, and, and he would talk about it endlessly. And that So, the, so um, Petrarch is a Christian, right. and Machiavelli was not. And Thomas Aquinas was. And so in that sense, you see, uh, the, the reason we're having to make fine distinctions is it's obvious, or I think it is, that Petrarch is closer to Thomas Aquinas than he is to Machiavelli. I agree with that. And Lightyear is closer. But, but look at this. You have to ask yourself the question, the academic disciplines and the way they're arranged constitute a statement about the hierarchy of knowledge and therefore the hierarchy of kinds of things. And so to separate poetry from philosophy and claim that it's that 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 a revival of that is the most urgent thing may constitute some demotion of philosophy mm-hmm. and possibly of theology. Certainly later it did in the Renaissance. So you've got something complicated going on here, and you you could say uh, there's a disturbance here. There's some greatness here too. There's a disturbance here, and we we know in the afterlight that that goes very far. Mm. And whether he's responsible for that or not, Matthew's the one who can say if anybody in this conversation can. Yeah. Do we have time for me to read a? A passage. Well, from, we, have three, um, oh, we have three more minutes, and I want yeah. to save. I want to save that passage for the end. But I, I do okay. want to say at the same time, he he does save Cicero. For, is, am I right in understanding your notes that he saves Cicero for us? Well, you know, Cicero was was quoted every once in a while by the medieval scholastics because he was a great 
thinker as far as virtue and other sorts of matters were concerned. But you know, Petrarch found all of these letters, these very personal writings of Cicero, and really was able to encounter Cicero, you know, as 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 a as a man, as as a person, but also saw Cicero as someone who is not just talking about the nature of virtue and the 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 you know the different uh, definitions of virtue, but actually had, as Petrarch puts it, the words that sting, that set a fire, and could actually inspire someone not only to know what virtue is, but to live virtuously. That's quite an accomplishment, that is. I'll be right back for our concluding segment on the Hillsdale Dialogue, the early Tuesday edition. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, 55 minutes after the hour. Thanks for joining me on this Tuesday. It's a special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue, which we did not have on Friday past because of uh, the Memorial Day special for the Semper Fi Fund. But we'll be back again on Friday with part two of this. I, uh, I'm hoping, Dr. Uh, Gaetano, you can tell us why you selected this poem that you sent me and then read it and explain why it matters so much in understanding Petrarch. Mm. You, know, you know, I've been arguing that, to a great extent, Petrarch is not as large of a break between these figures that we think of as, as medieval, you know, as we, as we often think. But there are certain things about Petrarch that do anticipate the way that we as, you know, modern, modern Western people think about ourselves. One is what we were saying earlier, that there, there's this patricidal tendency. You know, we're killing our fathers. We're, we, oppo- we are willing to say we're not like those who came before us and we're moving into the future. So we talked a bit about that. The other thing is just thinking about the self in a certain way as something problematic, something that's kind of very deeply, and not that medieval people weren't introspective, certainly someone like Thomas Aquinas was, but that the self was something problematic. So let me read this poem, the first of his, uh, of his uh, songs that uh, are inspired by Lauda, this, this woman that he claims to have seen you know, in, in church during Holy Week. You who hear the sound in scattered rhymes of those sighs on which I fed my heart in my first vagrant youthfulness when I was partly other than I am, I hope to find pity and forgiveness for all the modes in which I talk and weep between vain hope and vain sadness in those who understand love through its trials. Yet I see clearly now I have become an old tale amongst all these people so that it often makes me ashamed of myself. And shame is the fruit of my vanities and remorse and the clearest knowledge of how the world's delight is a brief dream. Boy, does that anticipate Hamlet. I mean, he's just nudging himself onto the stage here. And that you're saying that. Yeah, that's he's really going inside. Dr. David Allen White, who's been on the show many times, always says Hamlet is the first modern figure because he's so absorbed in himself. But you're saying, look, here's Petrarch absorbed in himself. I think there's something, you know, this this idea of lyric poetry, which is, you know, Petrarch was one of the great lyric poets, you know, of all of the, you know, all of modernity or, you know, since the Middle Ages. And uh, the idea of lyric poetry as something to reflect upon the self. And when I was partly other than I am, these kinds of lines, this is something really Petrarch to a certain extent created. You see instances of it in the classical world, but, you know, we just immediately associate introspection and lyric poetry. And that's a real important achievement or, or inheritance of, of, what, of what Petrarch. And next week, we're going to have to ask whether that is a good thing ever, that degree of self-absorption. Uh, but we are out of time this week. Dr. Matthew Gaetano, thank you for your, your uh, original appearance on the Hugh Hewitt Show. I really am very grateful for that and filling in some of the gaps here. Dr. Arn, thank you for going gently on me this, this week. You weren't too 
merciless, as is usually the case. You seemed a little frail lately. Hillsdale.edu for all of this and more. Hugh for Hillsdale.com for every Hillsdale dialogue. We'll be back on Friday, and I'll be back tomorrow, America, on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.